Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, just had the briefing with PR about what you can and can't talk about. Mona Mahajan joins us now, Alliance Global Investors, U.S. investment strategist. Mona, I'll just ask you, what can you possibly say about what happened last week so I keep you out of trouble? Yeah, uh, it's a great question on a Monday morning. Look, it was fascinating to watch. Uh, about $30 billion of, of market cap in a $50 trillion U.S. stock market has created um, really a lot of, of mania and attention. And I think, in, in fact, for some good reason, you know, we are living through history here. And a few questions that come to mind uh, as we process all of all of these news around stocks like GameStop, AMC, et cetera. Um, one, you know, what really drives uh, the value of an asset? Is it its fundamental value based on some sort of discounted cash flow model or PE multiple? Or is it really what an asset owner is willing to pay for it? And we see that in, in places like artwork or collectibles, et cetera. Is this really any different? And, and really over time, how does this end? Uh, does GameStop or an AMC come back down to its fundamental value, which if you look at average price targets by analysts, GameStop at 1350, AMC at 250, or you know, do we get some sort of regulation in the interim? Are market forces going to dominate? And then finally, you know, something we've been thinking about as an industry and as a financial services firm, um, are we going to need a new set of analysts that just kind of uh, go through and comb through message boards, social media? Uh, <clears throat> do we need AI yeah. and bots to help us with this to to kind of figure out where to invest next? And yeah. so. All fascinating questions. I mean, Mona, it's really important. We go through Pharaoh's Twitter feed just to see where he is. You know, that's the only way we knew he was in. I do too, yeah. Capri, I know you do as well. Uh, Mona, Mona, have you changed anything at Allianz? I mean, you know, it's sort of a February 1st readjust off what was written December 15th for 2021. Is there a nuance in the tone? You know, it's interesting. I mean, generally speaking, um, be beyond what's happening in the retail space, and certainly retail investors have become a bigger part of our equation, uh, both as clients, but really as drivers of, of the market. And we saw that not only this year, but really in force last year. I think in 2020, you could argue the smart money was the retail money who really got in post that March low and, and rode the market up 65% in the S&P, 90% plus on the NASDAQ. And so that was uh, fascinating to watch the retail versus the institutional clients that we had. Um, but broadly speaking, our outlook for 2021 is, is driven by three factors, and that's uh, reaccelerating growth. And we're watching you know, whether or not that does come to fruition in the second half of this year, uh, a Fed that continues to remain on the sideline. And we would argue that that will remain the case through 2021 at least. And then, of course, what happens with the Biden administration stimulus and, and fiscal spending. And I think interesting to see this week, the $1.9 trillion met with a $600 billion package by the Republicans, perhaps the magic numbers in the middle there, $1.2 to $1.3 trillion at some point. I think they, they both are starting points. So uh, as long as those factors are in place and we don't get any exogenous shocks, uh, we do think that uh, this is an economy and really an, a market that is pretty well supported. Have we already passed, Mona, the time where we can say that Reddit traders will not necessarily be the exogenous shock that causes a deeper sell-off? You know, uh, thus far, we haven't seen signals that that uh, these trades will, will spark any systemic risk. Um, as we noted earlier, 
as a percent of total market cap, very de minimis, probably less than maybe even 0.1% of overall market cap. Um, and so we think while they could cause ripples in how the financial services industry operates broadly, we don't think that it will cause um, any major shocks that would, would really put a dent in the overall financial services system. And so that to us is important. Uh, I, I do think we're watching for shocks that are beyond just, you know, the Reddit type traders, which include things, as you mentioned earlier, variants of the virus, whether or not yeah. we can win this race between vaccines versus variants, how the rollout's going. And we're encouraged on, on that front in particular, not only here in the U.S., but, but globally. The pandemic hardly got a look in last week, did it? Mona, great to catch up. <laughs> Mona Mahajan, Valiant's fantastic to catch up. Stay well. This is not the David Axelrod of Obama administration claim. It's the David Axelrod of Ballard Spar Law. What you need to know is uh, we know on surveillance, the length of the resume, the length of the bio is inversely proportional to the skill, except Axelrod is a wild, wild exception to that. His cases are extraordinary, both in private practice and his work with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And we're thrilled to bring you this voice on surveillance this morning. David, thank you so much. Really honored that you could be with us uh, this morning. You did an insider trader thing at the at the Williams Court there in Washington years and years ago. If you were speaking to a body of attorneys today about what is to come in this uproar, what would you say to them? You know, listen, I'd say that, you know, in the in the in the wake of this, everyone's looking for a boogeyman. But I think we're going to find out that nothing really has changed. Um, not really much was done wrong here. Uh, the, the rules are going to work fine. We may see other examples of this going forward, but I think the market's going to shake out. I mean, the, the small retail traders saw an, ineff- in an saw an inefficiency here, saw a window to do something. Um, <laughs> and and they and they did and they made some money. But, you know. All the stock's going to go back down, probably, right. and, and I think it's probably all going to shake out. How do you, as a lawyer, you've you've been you've been with SEC against Cooperman, you've had men, you've been on both sides of the fence practicing the law. How do you treat the Silicon Valley tone that we get from Robinhood and others? How do you handle the behavioral and cultural millennial tone that we observe? Well, listen, there are very smart people at, at the hedge funds and at institutional investors. They've been scraping social media for years already. They, this is nothing new to them. It may be new to us in the general public seeing this. But, you know, it's it's they're going to have to build into it. They're going to build it into their models. They're going to end up probably taking advantage of it in ways that I wish I could contemplate because I'd be not working in the law. Um, but, you know, they're going to deal with it and it's going to all be built into how they operate. What are the legal issues here, David? You know, I'm not sure there are. Uh, you know, as I said, a lot of people are looking for something wrong here, but this isn't a case where you see deception on Reddit. It's not, people aren't lying about what they're going to do. They're saying, I'm going to buy this stock because I want it to go up. People have been doing this for years. So I don't see anything wrong there. You know, for Robinhood, you know, you need to look at the terms of contracts they have with their with their actual customers. But I haven't seen anything that indicates there's a problem for Robinhood either. There's a larger question here, David, especially as social media takes on an increasing presence in markets. What's the line at which it crosses into market manipulation? Yeah, I mean, that's that's going to be the difficult thing, right? I mean, usually in situations like this, you see people crossing the line and the line is lying. The line is deception. The line is the pump as part of the pump and dump. Um, so once you see people kind of exaggerating, fabricating what's going to happen, 
you'll see the SEC get very active very quickly. But if that line hasn't been crossed, if you just have Dave Axrod sitting in front of his computer trading stock, it's the line's not there. I don't think hedge funds need me to protect them, David, but I will ask this. Does intent matter? Does the objective matter? If I go on a forum and say, this is what I like, this is why I like it, and the objective is just to make money, what if the objective is to hurt or cause someone else pain? Does, does that matter? I mean, no. Uh, in our system, in our, you know, hedge funds have been doing this year, for years. I mean, it, it, the intent is to make money. They don't care whether a business gets put out of business, I mean, which is the very you know, possibility of the, of the put options in this case. So no, I, you know, if retail investors want to hurt hedge funds, that's the way our, our system doesn't, doesn't capture intent. Our system, is lo as long as you're honest, as long as you're not deceiving someone, you can, your intent really is irrelevant. What did you think? What was your response when you saw trading shut down on Thursday or Friday? Do you just assume that somebody got out front of those announcements? Yeah, I, I, I always assume that if there's going to be a big shift in the way that the market's operating, that someone with the information imbalance is taking advantage how of do it. You, how do you discover that? How, how does the prosecution discover that malfeasance? Um, really simply, I mean, if it happened, I suspect that the SEC and perhaps the Department of Justice uh, will send subpoenas uh, for testimony, for emails, for Bloomberg IM chats. There we go. Uh, Exactly. I had to throw that pitch in for you. But Thank you. I mean, it, it, it's it's always in the records. So, I mean, if some hedge fund knew that Bloom, that Robinhood was going to take action and knew that would harm the stock, um, that information's probably going to be there. And the SEC or the DOJ, as I said, because this could be a criminal event, will find that. David, as a formal, former SEC official, given the politicization of this issue, the fact that AOC and Senator Ted Cruz came out and sided on the, on the side of the Robin Hood traders, this became a populist versus the system kind of debate. What are the long-term consequences for the supposedly apolitical regulatory agencies like the SEC? You know, from a policy perspective, I don't know, it could go millions of different ways. I mean, from, from AOC's perspective, um, I mean, they could attack what hedge funds were doing in the first place. They could attack large put options that, you know, some people argue have no economic benefit in the beginning. Um, others, they could attack Robinhood and make sure that market access is in place for everyone. But really, it's hard to tell. I mean, the politics of this are really weird, as anytime you have AOC and Ted Cruz lining up on the same <laughs> side of an issue, you know, one should expect. Um, so I don't know. It could, it could go a million different, op different ways. That's certainly a good way of putting it. David, great to catch up. Thank you. Thank you very much. David Axelrod, the former SEC Supervisory Trial Counsel, now with Ballard Spa Law. Kirsten Slock held court at Deutsche Bank for years, writing must-read 12-page papers that always had not one, not two, but three charts where you would stop and actually have to read the report and read the captions under the charts. That's how good he is. He was snagged by Apollo Management as their chief economist, we're thrilled that Mr. Slock could join us uh, this morning. Torsten, I want to cut to the chase, which is the idea of long-term inflation expectations. No one cares. Commodities lift. And it's real simple. On the central bank watch, should Mr. Powell pay attention to Dr. Copper? I mean, this is a very important issue in rates markets and therefore in everything fixed income. I mean, inflation expectations in the long end, so 10-year break-evens have gone up uh, almost on a linear trend uh, since uh, March. There have been a few wobbles here and there, but uh, this is certainly something that's very important for the Fed. Then, of course, the question becomes, well, why is it that the market suddenly expects inflation in 10 years' time 
to be higher. And there's a number of different explanations. The first one, as you mentioned, Tom, is that commodity prices are almost mechanically correlated with long-term inflation expectations. So commodity prices going up is a very important driver. But another very important driver is the Fed changed framework from just normal inflation targeting to average flexible inflation targeting. And therefore, the Fed saying will allow overshooting has been pushing long-term inflation expectations up. That's good here and now. But it is certainly a very critical thing to monitor if we do get that strong growth in the second half this year that uh, you guys have covered so well. Do you think that markets right now, Torsten, are underpricing or overpricing inflation? So I think, I mean, if I look on Bloomberg screen today, there is really no inflation in trim means, in core PCE, in core CPI, no matter what. Fit measure or uh, uh, BA measure that you look at for inflation, there's just no actual inflation. So all of this has to do with what are expectations, uh, of course, both in the next few quarters, but also what are expectations if you look several years out. So for now, I think the market is a little bit getting ahead of itself in the sense that uh, we will not get that much inflation. We will get some base effects, of course, here in the next few months, as we all know. Uh, but going into 2022, still, we have a lot of slack in the economy. We therefore, as, as you also just spoke about, the labor market is not great on Friday with the numbers that we get for January. So at this point, it is a little bit, it's still too premature to worry about inflation. Not to get philosophical about this, Torsten, but as we see higher commodity prices and as the prices of goods goes up as a result of supply chain disruptions and other uh, COVID-related issues, how much could we see some sort of, not disinflation, but stagnation? This idea that people's wages are staying the same or going down, the employment picture is weak, and they are forced to pay more for the goods that they need. That's right. And that's, that's, that's the environment we have today. I mean, commodity prices going up. And at the same time, we have also had very little employment growth. And unfortunately, we still have, as you know, that the employment situation that we have 10 million people less working today relative to February 2020. So the labor market is indeed still very weak while commodity prices are going up. If you look further out, then, of course, it becomes more uh, almost a philosophical issue whether you think that it is the level of capacity utilization that matters. In other words, in the Phillips curve, should we worry about the level of the output gap or the change in the output gap? That's a sophisticated way of saying that should we worry about a growth spurt potentially giving some inflation in the second half of this year? Or should we say, oh, that's not a problem because the unemployment rate is still so high? So there's a lot of uh, thinking around this issue, and I'm sure the Fed is uh, looking very carefully at this potential risk that we could have that the growth burst we get in the second half of this year does lift in particular services pricing. Torsten, talk to me about financial stability risks. And we've gone through the labour market. There are very clear reasons why this Fed wants to keep rates low for a long, long time. Do you see them doing that at the sacrifice of really making sure that financial stability risks don't build? That's really important, Jonathan. There is a very critical paper recently by Capillero and Simsek that tried to look at exactly why is it that stock prices are so seemingly disconnected from fundamentals. And what they are arguing, which makes a lot of sense, is that it's actually the optimal strategy for the Fed to say, if we know that this shock is of limited nature, in other words, it will be over at some point, then we should be easing financial conditions as much as possible. We should be creating a disconnect between stock prices and credit spreads and the real economy, because that does accelerate the expansion later on. So in that sense, uh, I think the Fed looks at this and says, yeah, we do know that stock prices might seem relatively high. We know that credit spreads are very tight relative to fundamentals. But this is the best strategy for us in terms of getting the economy as quickly back as possible. That's the objective. They've been successful. Torsten, I can pick example after example where they've managed to divorce financial conditions from economic fundamentals. Do you think we can ever reconcile that? 
Yeah, so now the question, of course, becomes, well, what once we then get to the pandemic being over, what is the world then going to look like? And in particular, if this is associated with rates going up, and this is where you get a little bit worried about what sectors in the S&P 500 are most vulnerable to higher rates. And that's, of course, those sectors that are more long duration. And that's, of course, in particular tech. So if we do have a move higher in rates in the second half this year, both in the front end with Fed expectations and also in the long end, then those parts of the S&P 500 that are most sensitive to a higher discount rate, and in this case, in particular, the tech sector, would also become more vulnerable. So you're right, Jonathan, that if we do have a much higher level of valuations once the pandemic is over, then uh, we do begin to, in particular, as I said, become more vulnerable to rates moving up. Within the system, Torsten Slock of Apollo Management, do you see effervescence? Is it an effervescence? I don't mean bubble in an amateur sense like that. But do you just see a ferment there from all this gross accommodation? So I think that the Fed and the ECB answer would be to say, we have done what we can do with the tools we have. And that's why the debate, as you also have talked about earlier today, is that now we're switching from monetary policy, having done whatever they can, and that results in higher asset prices. But that's why the fiscal discussion is now so absolutely critical. The small issue that we haven't really spoken about yet is, of course, that the number of cases is coming down quite quickly, yep. not only in the U.S., also in Europe, also in the U.K. And I mean, think about a few weeks ago in the U.S. to have about 300,000 new cases every day. Now we have about 150,000. If you put, admittedly, very simple, you rule it down and ask the question, if I type CVID on my Bloomberg screen, when will we actually get that the number of new cases will be close to zero? You get, and I know this is a bit extreme, thinking both about the strains from uh, Latin America and South Africa, et cetera, but you get that we get to zero new cases sometimes here, potentially already in March. So that's why the speed with which the number of cases is coming down, that's uh, something that we should not underestimate, that we could potentially have the growth spur, not only in the second half this year, it could potentially already come in the second quarter of this year. And that, of course, would be an upside surprise to markets. The upside surprise. So would you suggest that this bull market valuing out six months, valuing out a year is fairly priced? So that, that's why that comes to when we will begin to see inflation and therefore the Fed dovishness, will that be sticking or will the Fed be having to turn around quite quickly? As you know, the Fed is at the moment saying we will not hike rates until 2023. This is almost the premise for the hunt for yield, people buying first the duration in treasuries, then IG, then high yield, and then equities. If we do begin to see that growth comes faster and quicker and, and the ketchup effect, if you will, is much uh, more uh, speedy than what we all expect at the moment, then uh, the Fed would certainly have to pedal back and, and begin to talk about rate hikes coming sooner. But the question, therefore, is, is the Fed going to state dovish? Clarita has said that we'll do QE, meaning buy 80 billion in treasuries, 40 billion in mortgages throughout the end of this year. If we have three very strong uh, quarters of growth here in the next uh, nine months, then uh, we could have uh, that the Fed could be potentially to table already sometime in the second half of this year. Torsten, one thing that you did so well when you were at Deutsche Bank was put out these charts showing the divide in the labor market, showing the divide in the economy between haves and have-nots. From your seat now at Apollo, there is a question, when does this divide in have and have-nots affect markets, which have been relatively divorced from it and moving on very different factors, in part because they're dominated largely by the bigger, more resilient companies. When does it become a real problem Problem that you have a two-track economy with a two-track labor market. I know, Lisa, and I, as it is a K-shaped recovery. And as you have covered so well, this is creating all kinds of issues, in particular with leverage in companies that have very little earnings, not only because of COVID, 
but have not had earnings for three years in a row, the so-called Sumpy companies. And what this is also opening up is, of course, that there's a number of, if you will, unintended consequence of the very, very quick reaction that the Fed had during this crisis. Normally, a recession cleans out balance sheets. In 2006, it was cleaning out balance sheets in the housing sector. It was cleaning out balance sheets in the banking sector, cleaning out balance sheets in the household sector, meaning consumers. This time around, the Fed and the fiscal policy makers came to the rescue so quickly. So therefore, normally we then say, okay, we had a recession. We can now have another cycle the last 10 years. The issue is that this recession really didn't clean up much and therefore, many of the problems that we had pre-COVID, most importantly, leverage in the lower rated companies and a lot of companies that are much more at risk, that problem is still here. So in that sense, many of the vulnerabilities that you normally clean out with a recession, those vulnerabilities are still here. That's why going into this new cycle that we're literally entering here as we speak, it does raise some questions about, well, but this cycle starts out on a very vulnerable footing. And that is a problem when you think about how long this cycle actually can end up being. Serious issues. I have to say, though, Torsten, I just love that Apollo just allow just a little bit of stubble, just a little bit. It's COVID. It no, it works. John. No, it's that you talked about the Deutsche Bank Apollo transition. I'm just taking it seriously to the next level. You've got a little stubble. Yeah, I know. You've got it going it's, on. It's allowed here, too. Oh, yeah. So That's why I'm saying stubble. thanks, Carry Torsten on. Slock of Apollo <laughs> Management. <laughs> Looking at this chart, Tom, and uh, the peak of silver back on the Bloomberg was back in like 2011. So let's get, let's get some perspective here. We can do that with Mike McGlone. He covers all that commodity stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike, what do you make of what's going on with silver here this morning, up uh, 10%, pushing up to $30? Well, hello, Tom and Paul. I was thinking of you this weekend, too, Tom, um, when I was trying to ice skated in my neighbor's pond, but the ice wasn't <laughs> thick enough yet. But we're getting to that pond hockey let weather, just too much snow now. But That's me, very cool. Yeah. 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 The key That's thing about important. silver, it's a fundamentally bullish market. In fact, before this issues with Robin Hood and stuff, is it's the most likely commodity that I view that was really going to get to the old-time highs or even double in value this year, which is around 50. It's in a perfect spot as far as electrification, macroeconomic. It's being half-industrial, half-precious. But what's happening now with you know the Reddit stuff is this is a really deep market. Institutions in terms of futures are already very much long. They could ma manage money net positions, i.e. hedge funds. They're 25% of open interest net long already. So this is just adding a little fuel to the bullish narrative in silver, the way I see it. So it's kind of a – do you view this as kind of a short-term trading, I guess, a, you know, just a short-term blip here, Mike? Or is this something that the, the bulls can build upon going forward? Uh, the, more the latter. It's short term, and this is a good way for traders to lose money. I, I look at the best way to look at silver and precious metals and Bitcoin is just buy and forget about it. And the best way to lose money is to try to trade it. Okay. Silver is known as the devil's metal for a reason. Cause it Why? Will rip your, it'll make you, it'll make, the volatility is amazing. It'll make you lose your hair, as you've seen I used to have hair. But it's... <laughs> And it's, but it's at these levels, I think it just adds to nerve. That's the big difference with things like GameStop. It's a fundamentally bearish stock right. when it had too many shorts. This is fundamentally bullish, a really deep market that's already long, and it has a lot of reasons to just do what gold did. Gold made a new high last year. Silver to gold ratio right now is below the 20 year average, which is quite rare. So to me, the whole space is just moving higher. Just silver has the, yeah. it has the attention at the moment. Mike, this statistic from USGS, a government agency, if you walk 180 feet, folks, which is like what Tom Brady will pass on the first down <laughs> on the Super Bowl, if you walk 180 feet and you make a cube of that size, 
That's all the silver in the world. Mike, I, I think all of us have an intuitive understanding of gold. Is is silver constrained? Is it rare? Is it is it something where they're not mining it anymore? It's been constrained for a while. COVID reduced production, and you know prices have been down since that peak in 2011. So obviously, you'd expect a, a pullback in all the all but the most productive mines. But the big difference is, 20 years ago, maybe 80 or 60 percent of it was really used for precious purposes and for jewelry and thing. Now it's 50 percent is industrial solar panels and things and electrification and the other 50 percent is for coinage and and jewelry and things so to me that's why it's so unique in this space and it's just not as rare as gold the thing is if prices get high enough you can bring on silver supply quite rapidly gold is much harder to do interesting where 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 do you get silver where do you mine silver mike South America, Mexico, Peru, Chile. It's okay. almost all South America. We just think of the conquistadors. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the main I was going to say the fourth floor of Tiffany, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Don't go there. <laughs> so, Mike, Bitcoin, you, let's get your 30 seconds on Bitcoin. My, Tom, Tom just lives for this. I do. Well, it's, the thing about Bitcoin is just the fact is the old school precious metal holders of centuries now know they have to have some Bitcoin in their portfolios and they might be missing out. Now, that's not only anecdotal. It's a fact in terms of funds. And it makes sense from what you're hear- seeing from the narrative is you probably need to add maybe a portion of what I was going to put in, in gold or what I did put in gold into Bitcoin. So now I analyze the two together. And if you look at Bitcoin and gold together combined, their uh, actual volatility has been lower than the stock market on a 75, 25 basis. You know, we could get the 45 people, Paul, we've had on against McGlone. It could be McGlone against all exactly. of the Mike, <laughs> he was the first I, one. He was the first one to tell me about Bitcoin being a store of value. So that, that got yeah, my attention. Hey, hey, moonshot. <laughs> um, Mike, I learned, I hate when he's on because I have to take notes. I learned yep. so much. Michael McGlone, thank you so much. Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.